Well, hey, Heritage. I want to welcome each and every one of you across the network. It's great to be back today, and, and I'm excited to see how God's going to work and move as we continue in our Relatable series. This is week three, and Jeremiah did a great job in week one and two to position us to continue to ask the question, what would it look like to see the blessing and favor of God in our relationships? And it's a worthwhile and relevant conversation, because no matter where you've been or where you're coming from this week, what kind of day or morning you've had so far, the reality is we all want the blessing and favor of God. I know I do, especially as a leader in the church. In fact, to, to not have or to lose the favor of God could be the worst thing that would happen. Uh, more than any pain, any other hardship, any other loss, that would be it. I'm not diminishing the significance of those other things, nor do I desire them. They're just not as significant as losing the favor of God in life, which makes this conversation worthwhile and relevant, to ask the question, what does it look like to experience the blessing and favor of God in our relationships and in our life? To have those relationships marked by Him, what does it look like? Now, having said that, there is this reality that whenever we start to lean into subjects like this, we can begin to overthink them. We can make them more difficult than they need to be. The things of God, spiritual things, can seem so far out there that we start to overthink, we start to misunderstand, misrepresent, we just get our head turned. We can get to a place of overthinking. Kind of like the young man in this picture here. Uh, this young man is um, hanging for dear life on a rope in a swimming pool. He is trying to avoid drowning. <laughs> It is a desperate situation, but he's missing something. This is taken from a cell phone video. Let me show you the 20 second clip that explains what happens. Take a look. We can overthink things, can't we? Yeah, and every time we do, we misunderstand the situation, we, get mis we misrepresent it, we get our heads turned, it just gets complicated. It's always problematic when we overthink things. Now understand something, you know, that was a cell phone video which meant somebody observed the problem and decided to capture the situation rather than resolve it. We all know those people, right? Sometimes we can be those people because some things are just so funny you have to capture them. I get it. But listen, experiencing the blessing and favor of God includes two things that I want to talk about today. One is not overthinking it, and the second is the reality of how we relate to others. Not overthinking and how we relate to others. That, the person holding the video didn't bring peace to that little boy's life. It's not overthinking it, but also how we relate to others. See, there's a really large chunk of teaching that Jesus gave that's captured in three chapters in the book of Matthew, 5, 6, and 7. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And it's called that because Jesus preached a sermon while seated on a mount. There you go, on a hillside. But in that sermon, he, he spoke specifically about several things that equate or connect to the blessing and favor of God and how we relate. 
how we interact with people. And at the front end of that whole sermon is one section called the Beatitudes. And the word Beatitude is not a word we commonly use today, but it, it means supreme blessedness. Beatitude means supreme blessedness. And our series, our Relatable series, is anchored in those Beatitudes. And we've seen a number of them in the first couple of weeks, and we're going to lean further into it today. But they, they kinda, they're kind of straightforward, and they seem simple. But when we overthink them, we miss out. We overcomplicate it. We get our heads turned in it. Over overthinking is always problematic. You know, my wife Beth and I, here's a picture of us recently. We've been married for over 25 years. And we're actually very different. But our differences allow us to be uniquely matched together and, our, and strengthen one another and connect and fill each other's gaps. But those differences sometimes can be stressful or cause some tension. One of the differences we have is how we organize. I like to organize with structure, and, and she likes to organize with piles. <laughs> she organizes in stacks. I like to organize with a little more structure. <laughs> and that's been a point of contention in our relationship a few times through the years. But a number of years ago, she actually said to me, Sean, I need you. Would you please help me get organized? And she pointed at one of the stacks of papers. And in that moment, the clouds parted. The angels began to <laughs> sing. It was a righteous moment. Oh! I'm like, yeah, baby, I'll help you with that. And so I spent the next couple of days, I got this box, and I custom made some tabs, and I set it up for day, week, and for a whole month, and I put some color codes and priority indicators so that she could rotate the papers through and keep things on track and have it all going. I made a legend that identified what each of those codes meant, and I took it back to her, and I said, here it is, honey, here's the thing, and I began to explain to her the code and the, the little key, and, and she stopped me. She said, what is this? I said, this is to help you get organized. She said, what? I said, yeah, you asked me to help you get organized. She said, no, I didn't. I just wanted you to get some file folders and help me put those papers in the filing cabinet. I way overthought that. <laughs> See, when we overthink things, we, we misunderstand and, and we mismanage and it, and it gets complicated. And the reality is when it comes to the things that God calls us to do, we tend to overthink it. I mean, we may want to relate to people and have the favor of God, but we can feel like it's a bridge too far, it's water too deep, but it's actually more simple than we make it out to be. And I want to show you how today. I want to show you how by looking at the next beatitude in Matthew chapter 5. It's actually in verse 9. You can jump there in your Bible or you can look at your guide or just up here. But Matthew chapter 5, verse 9 is, is the next beatitude. Here's what it says. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the what? Peacemakers. This is the first fill in your note, God, if you want to use that. But blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Catch something in this. Blessed are the peacemakers. The blessing part is God's part. Living as a peacemaker is ours. Now, the interesting thing is that this is the only place that, the, that this word is used in all of Scripture. It's actually a unique combination of two words that mean uh, peace and, and maker. <laughs> but it's not just maker, it's, it's actually do. So it's almost like do peace, maintain peace, keep peace, bring about peace. And ultimately then be called the children of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. In some sense, we could say that as God blesses those who do peace. 
Now, there are certain things that when we do certain things, God has certain responses. That's just a fact. But when it comes to this idea of children of God, it actually harkens back to something we looked at on Easter weekend. See, here it talks about being called children of God, but the right to be a child of God is given elsewhere. It's actually something we find in the beginning of the Gospel of John. John is one of Jesus' 12 disciples, and in his book he starts out by saying some things about what it means to be a child of God. Here's what he says. He says, Jesus came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. See, the reality is, and we talked about this at Easter, is that we can know about Jesus and we can believe in Jesus, but what he really wants is us to receive him in the fullness of a resurrected Lord, in the resurrection power that comes along with that, to know, believe, and receive. And when we walk that process, we actually become children of God. So to to be able to come home to God, to come back to God, to be reconciled to God, centers around receiving Jesus, knowing, believing, receiving. And that's that's all good. But there are certain, when we do certain things, God does certain things in response, and one of the things he calls us to be is a peacemaker, to live as a peacemaker. Someone who brings forth quietness, someone who does not cause strife or conflict. The amplified version of Matthew 5 verse 9 just kind of extends the the language a bit and has some emphasis to it. Here's what that translation says. Blessed, spiritually calm with life joy in God's favor are the makers and maintainers. The makers and maintainers of peace for they will express his character and be called sons of God, children of God. I love the way that 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 translation emphasizes some key components. But I think this scripture, just like many other scriptures that we can read, the, the reoccurring question is, how does it actually work? How do we experience the dynamic that we read in scripture? What is our part in that? Now again, there, when we do certain things, God does certain things, and one of those certain things is the, is the call to live as a peacemaker. But understand something, not everything that God does is a response to what we do. Most of it is in response to who we are, not what we've done or what we do. It's who we are. See, no matter who you are, what you've done, how you've lived, your upbringing, your experience, your background, your choices, all of us are three things, three things. The first is that we're an image bearer, an image bearer. We bear the image of God. In Genesis chapter 1, it says that, that God said, let us make mankind in our image, and so he made male and female in and, and his image, and, and he made, made them both, he created them both. And, and we're made with the image of God within us, created with the image of God in us. So we have inherent value, we have inherent worth, but we also have this inherent wiring for community because there was a trinity dynamic by which we were created out of, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're all image bearers. The second reality is that we're all loved. That's all through Scripture, but one of the most succinct expressions of that is John three sixteen, where it says, for God so what? Loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. When he's talking about the world, he's not talking about this rock we live on. He's talking about humanity, us. And so we have, we're image bearers, but we are also loved. And the third thing that we all are is that we have sinned. We've all sinned. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This defines our reality. 
And most of what God does is not based in what we do, but based in who we are. And we are image bearers, we are loved, and we have sinned. We have inherent value despite our circumstances. But we also have purpose in a wiring for community. And most of what he does is based on who we are, not what we do. So what I think happens in that dynamic is when we understand that we are image bearers, that we are loved, and that we have sinned, I think we find ourselves looking at God as if he has only two options with us. One is that he could condone what we do in life, or he could condemn us for what we've done in life. We look at that as a tension between the two. We think, well, he can, he can accept us for what we've done, or he can reject us based on what we've done. In some sense, we start to think that this is the reality that he's for us over here, and that, that he's against us over here. We start to think that it's a, that it's a either or reality and, and the tension starts to form in how we function and how we view ourselves and, and really what we're talking about is the issue of innocence and guilt. And when we sit on this line, we start to panic, we start to overthink it and we don't know what to do. But what Jesus does for us is he creates a space of embrace right here in the middle. What Jesus did because of our sin is he came and created a space by which we can step into embrace based on who we are. Also in light of what we've done, but because we're image bearers and loved by God, he creates an embrace space. And when he does that, he's actually creating this reality of invitation and confrontation, both. See, when Jesus made disciples, he had a very unique combination of invitation and confrontation. Invitation and confrontation, of, of welcoming and challenge, of the reality of an embrace space. He didn't condone and he didn't condemn. He embraced. But you actually don't have to take my word for it. I want to actually look at a moment, one particular moment, where Jesus demonstrated this. It's, in, it's a few chapters back from Matthew in the Gospel of John, John chapter 8. It's a really powerful moment where Jesus masterfully uses invitation and confrontation. He bridges the condone-condemn reality with an embrace space. Now, it happens in the temple in Jerusalem because in this time, Jesus has been going to the temple. People would gather and he would sit down and he would teach. Even though the religious leaders of the day were trying to silence him and arrest him, he chose to go to the most public place in Jerusalem and teach. It was the temple. And we're picking up this moment, John chapter 8, verse 2. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Let me just hold it right there for a moment, because there's almost this idea that Jesus ignores them altogether, ignores the accusation, almost as if he doesn't hear them, that, that he doesn't, understand, doesn't recognize that they're saying anything to him at all. Because this was not a legitimate theological conversation they were bringing to him. This was a trap. 
It's almost what I, for all you Star Wars fan, it's an Admiral Akbar moment. It's a trap. He just, it's a moment to declare that. It's like when your, when your wife asks you, does this dress make me look fat? That's a bit of a trap question. This is a trap moment. These guys had already disregarded the law. The law said that both parties involved in adultery were to be punished. So where's the dude? They didn't bring the man. She was caught in the act, so where's the guy? The deal is, they, they were just using her sin and her shame to position Jesus for a trap to make him choose, condemn or condone, so they could accuse him. And it was a bit of a lose-lose dynamic. If he encouraged them to show mercy to her, he'd be in violation of the law of Moses. If he encouraged them to punish her, well then, he would be reported to the Romans because the Romans had removed the Jews' right to affect executions and punishment like that. It was lose-lose, it was a trap. It was a choice to condone or condemn, and these men kept hounding him, they kept asking him. And then, let's take a look at what happens, verse seven. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, so he stood up and looked them in the eye. Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Now, catch this. This thing started where Jesus was, he was seated and teaching. And then he bends over and he begins to write in the dirt. And then as we just read, he stands up and he looks the guys right in the eye. And then he stoops back down and he continues to write in the dirt. Why would he do that? He was creating an embrace space. In a dynamic that was presented only as condoned condemn. He's creating an embrace space. He's being a peacemaker. He's offering humility and gentleness to the woman caught in her shame. And he's offering truth and love to the men who are bringing these accusations with unhealthy motives. Invitation and confrontation to both. He's being a peacemaker as he creates a space of embrace. Look at verse 9. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I, what? Condemn. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. This is a powerful moment of interaction. It's actually one that could easily uh, get us overthinking. But the guys brought this woman before Jesus only to set him up. They brought her in her shame, in her humiliation, already in a sense of condemnation. And they did it not seeing her as an image bearer, or as loved by God, but as someone who sinned. Already condemned using her to trap Jesus. But, but Jesus didn't react. He didn't get angry. He, he didn't lash out. He wasn't outraged. He didn't yell at the woman or yell at the men. He didn't react at all. He responded. He paused. He stoops down, perhaps to identify with some level of, of humility for the woman, to ease her embarrassment. He created a space for her to be embraced. And peacemakers embrace. They, they discern and respond 
rather than decide and react. There's a difference. And Jesus responds in that embrace space is not one of declaring innocence or guilt, but one of creating space for pardon. A space in the middle for pardon. Now, there's lots of teachers and preachers and commentators and scholars who have speculated on what Jesus was actually doing in the dirt. From, from random doodling all the way to writing the names and specific sins of the guys standing around him. We don't, we don't really know what he did in the dirt. But what, but what we do know is that based on what those guys heard, they left. It could have been a combination of what they read and heard, but scripture says based on what they heard. We know that they were convicted by what they heard Jesus say. And they walked away. And the woman who was, who was guilty of great sin, experiences the goodness of an embraced space. Jesus was, was the only one who was sinless there that day, therefore the only one who was positioned to be able to throw the first stone. And he didn't. He chose to neither condemn or, the, or to condone. There, there's this reality that he consistently you used a combination of invitation and confrontation to make disciples. Now, there's a tension in this conversation because you got grace and truth, you have mercy and justice. It's almost this sense of how do you reconcile the reality between the two? And you can find yourself asking the question, how does God show love and mercy without being unjust or violating his own laws? Well, because he doesn't think the way we do. He doesn't function and condone and condemn. He actually creates that middle, messy middle of embracing for redemption. Jesus didn't condemn the woman, but he didn't condone what she did either. He, he said, I don't condemn you, but then he says, now go and stop sinning. He wasn't accepting her sin, but neither was he rejecting her for it. He was inviting her into an embrace space so that she could actually become more. He, neither, he went neither left nor right, but he chose to stay in the middle, welcoming and challenging, inviting and confronting. See, the way of a peacemaker is the way of embracing. It, it's a messy middle, but it's a space that Jesus provides for us, and, and, and it creates a pathway for us to walk ourselves. When we understand our identity in Jesus, we connect to our purpose, and it's in this embrace space that we can live into it. And this is what Jesus does for us. When he creates an embrace space, he creates a space for us to belong. This is, this is an issue of proximity. He gives us a space where we can, we can actually start to experience the love of God, and that proximity actually positions us to experience transformation by his power and by our participation. That belonging space creates a space for us ultimately to know who he is, but to then believe and fully receive him and become a child of God. We know, believe, receive. After that moment, we're positioned to actually live in a journey of becoming, where we become all we were created to be in the first place. The embrace space allows us to belong, then allows us to step into belief, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can become. It's the love of God that allows us to belong in the embrace space. It's the authority of Jesus that we step into in belief, and it's the power of the Holy Spirit that leads us in an ongoing process of becoming more and more who we were intended to be in the first place. This is a space of pardon. We can move left and right, we can stand in judgment on either side. The problem is this over here is just really harsh and cold. This over here is self-indulgent. But God is the one who is judge. 
The Holy Spirit is the one who convicts. And Jesus is the one who saves. Our job is to facilitate the dynamics of that. Rather than standing left and right in some kind of judgment, self-indulgent or prideful, we're invited to stoop in the middle and in humility and submission, walk this path ourselves and help others do the same. The way of a peacemaker is embracing. It's creating belong, believe, become space. It's a space where we offer forgiveness. It's a space of mercy and grace. Mercy is withholding what we deserve. Grace is offering what we don't. Embrace space is mercy and grace. Now, one of the things that I think is an absolute joy that I love to do in life is to see people step into the fullness of what God intended for them in the first place. We see that whenever anybody walks belong, believe, and become. One of the specific expressions of that is is baptism. And as part of our Easter weekend celebrations, I had the privilege of joining our brothers at Kiwani in some time of worship and study but also celebration of the resurrection and believer baptism. And I want to take a moment and invite you into catching a glimpse of what some of that journey of becoming looked like when we gathered that day. Take a look. are moving in a journey of becoming. And I am so proud of you guys. It is a privilege to walk with you. And I want to invite any of the men of our Heritage Network who feel like God might be calling you to step into being part of the team at our Kwani campus. I don't want you to miss, there's an opportunity for a meeting this Tuesday, six o'clock at the former Kone facility. I invite you to make time to be there and get more information about what it looks like to become part of that journey and walking with those gentlemen. But I got to tell you, as powerful and significant as that was to celebrate baptism with those guys, God's doing that journey of becoming all across our network. 
But understand something. Our value is in who we are, not in what we do. There are certain things that we do and God has certain responses to it. But our value is in who we are. We've all sinned. But we are image bearers. And we are loved by God. An embrace space allows us to find peace in complexity. Embrace space allows us to find freedom in incarceration. That's what the reality of, of what embrace does. It creates the space for that to happen. And it's not about innocence and guilt. It's about a place of pardon as we belong and believe and become. And if, if you've not stepped into relationship like this before, if you've lived left or right, you've lived on the line and the tension of not knowing how to navigate this, I want to encourage you to step into embrace space today. To step into a space of belonging because you are loved as an image bearer but to step into a place of belief by receiving Jesus as Savior and then walk the journey of becoming. It starts with a very simple but significant conversation. It just starts with a prayer. And I want to encourage you, if you've not walked this path or if you've stopped somewhere along the way and haven't lived fully into it, to lean all the way in. To lean all the way in. There's a prayer on the back of your note guide that allows you to take this step of believing and receiving, but the rest of the journey is what we walk together as a church family as we live as peacemakers. I encourage you to lean into that if you've not stepped into that relationship yet before. When we know who we are, we connect to who he's calling us to be. And we connect with our purpose as we understand our identity in Jesus. So, so what? I wanna give three specific truths that allow each of us to lean into the invitation and challenge, the invitation and confrontation of living as a peacemaker that'll set us up for the rest of our journey a bit more. Here's the first truth. You can't be in meaningful relationship with people and not experience pain. You cannot be in meaningful relationship with people and not experience pain. People and their choices cause complexity. Pain, hardship, loss, there's a temptation in that dynamic to wanna to take the easy path and move left and right to condone, condemn. Because there's some sense that we think we have more control, greater safety, we can hide and limit the complexity by going left or right. But Jesus calls us to the messy middle. As beautiful as the diagram I'm drawing is, like as cool as it is, as true as it is, there is a complexity to sitting in the messy middle. And one of those complexities is simply the reality that we can't be in meaningful relationship with people and not experience pain. We can't be in relationship with people and not be hurt. No one's perfect. No matter how great they are, no, no one's perfect. There's no perfect relationship. There's no perfect family, no perfect church, no perfect business, no perfect community. We, we have all failed. We have all betrayed. We've all misrepresented, mismanaged. It's messy, but it's not inherently bad. Embrace is worth the risk. Wise risk. See, there is, there is unwise risk in places where we risk in abuse or physical danger or, or some kind of complexity like that. That's not what I'm talking about, about leaning into risking in the embrace space. I am talking about places that are uncomfortable, places that do have pain, do have conflict. There are places that, that have disappointment and failure. But understand, Jesus risked everything as he lived in proximity to pain and betrayal and misrepresentation and misunderstanding, not for the experience, 
but for the outcome, redemption, a, a pathway of becoming. He did it and he calls us to do the same. But really be careful, don't confuse the lack of conflict as peace. It's not. I, I don't have a single long-standing relationship that isn't marked by grace and mercy. Not one. I have surfacey relationships that don't have those things, but no meaningful, long-lasting relationship that isn't marked by some level of forgiveness, grace, reconciliation, patience on both sides. Because you can't be in a meaningful relationship with people and not experience pain. Now here's the second reality. Seeking to be right rather than seeking to be in relationship perpetuates brokenness. It perpetuates brokenness. When we seek to be right rather than being in relationship, it perpetuates brokenness. And many of us do it, many people do it. It feels right, it feels good, it feels just. It actually often is one of the left or right realities. But it's not what God calls us to. The Pharisees tried to live this way, they wanted to be right. They wanted to be right in opposition to Jesus. They wanted to be right and prideful in what they could accomplish. But whenever we prioritize being right over being in a relationship, it perpetuates brokenness, and it's not Christ-like. Jesus didn't stare down the Pharisees to win the argument and be right. He, he didn't shame the woman to prove how she was wrong and he was right. He did everything he could to alleviate the tension and pressure of the moment, to create the embrace space for both the woman and the men. And it's always foolish to prioritize being right rather than being in a relationship. I am so glad that God does not prioritize being right rather than being in a relationship with us. Because he's always right. He loves us. He creates the embrace space for us to walk and he invites us to do the same. And we need to be careful not to seek being right rather than being in a relationship because that will only perpetuate brokenness. And that's a key concept because it leads us into the final truth. Ultimately that relatable is not identical, but relational. The idea that we're talking about in the series, being relatable is not identical, but relational. Unity is not sameness, it's oneness. Sameness is not unity. God made diversity in creation and we need to really be careful to to not, to really stop trying to remove it. Relatable is not identical, but relational. And being a peacemaker is relational. It's, it's not judging, it's embracing. It's a different dynamic. And one of the problems that I see we're facing in our world today is an increasing perspective that disagreement equals opposition. That's a false paradigm. That disagreement inherently equals opposition. That is not true. It can, but it doesn't inherently mean opposition. And I gotta tell you, the perception that disagreement equals opposition is destroying unity, especially in the church. But relatable is not about identical, but relational. How we connect, how we relate, what we do, how we think, it's relevant and it's important. And regardless of who you are, where you've been, who you know, here's the deal, we're all in this thing together. So don't overthink it. Don't overthink it. God's blessing and favor are given in response to how we relate to him and how we relate to others. And blessed are the peacemakers, those who embrace. Peacemakers invite and confront. They see what can be and they 
see what shouldn't be. But it's both and. It's not one without the other. One without the other is problematic. This becomes self-indulgence. This becomes simply just harsh and pride. It's problematic to have one without the other. Neither is love. Without the other, neither is love. This is the place that we love. Now, we're going to talk more about this as we continue in our series, but I don't want you to overthink this. Don't, don't get caught on this line, in the tension, trying to figure it out. Just stand up in the middle. Stand in his love. Because it's the love of God and the authority of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit that allows us to experience flourishing and fullness of life. The fullness that Jesus came for and the freedom that he came for. You can be a peacemaker in your marriage. You can be a peacemaker in your classroom, with your coworkers, with your fellow students, in your community. Don't be the person who stands with the camera, videoing the problem, declaring it's a problem and doing nothing about it. Be someone who brings forth peace by creating this space of embrace in the love of God and the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus. And watch what he does. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for being willing to be in the messy middle. God, you are righteous and holy. You stand able to judge. Your son was sinless. He didn't have to endure what he did. But because of your great love, you created a space for us to be embraced so that we can belong and believe and become. And I pray, Father, that for those that have done that, that we would turn around and help others do the same, that we would live in a posture of being willing to embrace in, in truth and love. But for those that have not yet stepped into that embrace space with you on their own, yet, I, God, I pray that even now that it, they just sense your presence and hear and sense your love and would choose to step into that belief as they receive Jesus. Thank you for loving us, Lord. May you continue to have your will and way, even as we worship, even as we reflect on the truth of what it means to be a peacemaker. May we experience your blessings, Lord, as we bring forth peace, as we do peace in this life. I pray this in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen.